On our bulletins today, you notice it gives a verse from Isaiah, talks about the host of heaven, the stars, and all that. And it says, God knows each name. He's got every star named. The things in the heavens, he calls them by name. That's pretty interesting. And now, as we understand how much more vast and how many, many, many more stars there really are than they did way back then, there's a lot of names that God knows, a huge amount. Today we'd like to think about the thought, God of all, or perhaps God of the hills and the valleys. Turn with me, if you would, to 1 Kings chapter 20. We'd like to read about a rather unique series of incidents. And Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria, assembled all his army together. And there were 30 and two kings with him. A lot of kings were helping him. And horses and chariots, sort of like tanks. And he went up and he besieged Samaria. And he warred against it. And he sent messengers to Ahab, king of Israel. Now, if you recall, Ahab was not a very good king. He was a very bad one in many respects. And it wasn't a help that he was married to Jezebel. She was a worshiper of Baal. But here we find that God's going to help Ahab, I think, to bring judgment upon Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria. So he sent messengers to Ahab, king of Israel, into the city. And he said to him, Thus says Ben-Hadad, Your silver and your gold is mine. So he said, It belongs to me, all the gold and all the silver that you have. Your wives also and your children... Even the goodliest, they are mine. So he's making a claim of all these things. Looks a little bit like Russia is doing with Ukraine. And the king of Israel answered and said, My lord, O king, according to your saying, I am yours and all that I have. That was quite a concession. All his riches, all his family, he said, okay, you own us all. And the messengers came again and they said, thus speaks Ben-Hadad saying, so now he's going to up the ante here, more than that of all things. Although I have sent to you saying, you shall deliver me your silver and your gold and your wives and your children, yet I will send my servants to you tomorrow about this time, and they shall search your house and the houses of your servants. And it shall be that whatsoever is pleasant in your eyes, they shall put it in their hand and take it away. Then the king of Israel called all the elders of the land and said, Mark, I pray you, and see how this man seeks mischief, because he sent to me for my wives 
and for my children and for my silver and for my gold, and I did not deny him. And all the elders and all the people said to him, Don't pay attention to him nor consent. Wherefore he said to the messengers of Ben-Hadad, Tell my lord the king, All that you did send for to your servant at the beginning I will do, but this, this thing I may not do. And the messengers departed and brought him word again. And Ben-Hadad sent to him and said, The gods do so to me and more also, if the dust of Samaria shall suffice for handfuls for all the people that follow me. And the king of Israel answered and said, Tell him, let not him who girds on his harness boast himself as he who puts it off. And it happened when Ben-Hadad heard this message, as he was drinking, he and the kings in the tents, that he said to his servants, Set yourselves in array. They set themselves in array against the city. And look, there came a prophet to Ahab, king of Israel, saying, Thus says the Lord, Have you seen all this great crowd? Look, I will deliver it into your hand. We sang about this kind of great victory. Into your hand this day, and you shall know that I am the Lord, the Jehovah. In other words, the almighty, powerful God, the only one. And Ahab said, by whom? And he said, thus says the Lord, even by the young men of the princes of the provinces. Then he said, who shall order the battle? And he answered, you. Then he counted the young men of the princes of the provinces, and they were 232. And after them he counted all the people, even all the children of Israel being 7,000. On comparison, that, that was very few. And they went out at noon, but Ben-Hadad was drinking himself drunk in, among the tents. He and the kings, the thirty and two kings, who helped him. And the young men of the princes of the provinces went out first, and Ben-Hadad sent out. And they told him, saying, There are men come out of Samaria. And he said, Whether they be come out for peace, take them alive. Or whether they be come out for war, take them alive. So these young men of the princes of the provinces came out of the city, and the army which followed them. And then guess what happened here? Pretty amazing. Remember, they're greatly outnumbered, as we later see in the passage. And they slew every one his man, and the Syrians fled, and Israel chased them. And Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria, escaped on a horse with the horsemen. And the king of Israel went out and smote the horses and chariots and killed the Syrians with a great slaughter. And the prophet came to king of Israel and said to him, Go, strengthen yourself, and mark, and see what you do. Because at the return of the year, the king of Syria will come against you. And the servants of the king of Syria said to him, Their gods, and here's the key thing. See, they lost the battle. So now they're telling Ben-Hadad. 
Your gods, their gods, are the gods of the hills. The Israelites' God, they say, he has power in the hills. Therefore, they were stronger than we. But let us fight against them in the plain, in the valley. And surely we will be stronger than they. So you see, they believed in gods that were powerful in the hills and gods that had control and had their power in the valleys. And they said, okay, let's make equal numbers again where we outnumbered them such a large amount and we'll see what's going to happen here. We're going to win. And do this thing, verse 24. Take the kings away, every man out of his place, and put captains in their rooms. So those 32 kings, okay, put knowledgeable military people in their places. And count you an army like the army that you had lost. Horse for horse, chariot for chariot, and we will fight against them in the plain, in the valley. Surely we shall be stronger than they. And he paid attention to their voice and did so. So they were saying, there's are the gods of the hills. They have power up there, but let's make everything equal. Same number of people, fight them again, this time in the valley. The gods of the valley, you see, they're going to help us. He paid attention to the voice, he did so. And it happened at the return of the year that Ben-Hadad counted the Syrians and went up to Aphek to fight against Israel. And the children of Israel were counted and were all present, went out against him. And the children of Israel pitched before them like two little flocks of kids, but the Syrians filled the country. So there you get the picture, hugely outnumbered. They made sure that had the same amount. They're going to prove that the gods of the valley were on their side and were stronger than the gods of the hills. And there came a man of God, and he spoke to the king of Israel, and he said, Thus says the Lord, Because the Syrians have said, The Lord is God of the hills, but he is not God of the valleys. Therefore, I will deliver all their great multitude into your hand, and you shall know that I am the Lord. In other words, that I am in charge. I am the God of the hills. I'm the God of the valleys. I am the God of all things. I am all-powerful God. And they pitched one over against the other seven days, like they were kind of sizing each other up here. And so it was that in the seventh day the battle was joined. And the children of Israel slew of the Syrians a hundred thousand footmen in one day. Remember earlier we'd seen that there were 7,000 basically Israelite soldiers. But the rest fled to Aphek, to the city. And there a wall fell down upon 20 and 7,000 of the men that were left. And Ben-Hadad fled, and he came into the city into an inner chamber. <laughs> well, next few verses, finishing the chapter, you can read it and see what interesting thing happened after that. But here's the point. There was a great battle, unjust, on Ben-Hadad's side. He was demanding all these things, and they finally drew a line and said no. Then he came and he fought with them. 
but he hugely outnumbered this small, like a little flock of sheep. But the Israelites won. So Ben-Hadad and the rest said, well, that's because they have the gods of the hills. They live up there. And On the other hand, now let's get them down in the valley. We'll have the same number of people on their side and our side we'll see how that the gods of the valleys are stronger than the gods of the hills. That was pretty limited because, you see, God is not only the god of the valley, but the god of the hills and the god of all creation. He's god of all the galaxies, the uncountable almost, stars. If you really study these things, it blows your mind. You can't really grasp how vast, how many stars, how big the universe is. And we can only see so far with our most powerful telescopes. God made them. God keeps it all going. Not only the vast universe, but also the subatomic universe. There's so many things going on, little things that we can't even see. Uh, viruses, other things, sometimes things that are problems to us, subatomic reality. God made everything. God is God. He's all-powerful over everything. The victory is his. As we sang, too, I thought about Goliath, the great giant, and how God, through David, conquered that giant. What were the Syrians doing, Ben-Hadad and the others? Well, they were limiting God. Turn with me, if you would, to Psalms 78, beginning in verse 41. Yes, they turned back and limited, they tempted God and limited the Holy One of Israel. It's talking about a different situation, but they were doing the same type of thing. They were doing wrong because they were limiting God's power. They were not acknowledging that he is God Almighty. Going back to verse 19 in the same Psalm, Psalm 78. Here it's talking about the Israelites in the desert. They spoke against God. They said... Can God furnish a table in the desert? And of course, you know how he gave them manna, bread-like substance, so they could eat every day. Can God? You remember when there was a demon-possessed boy and the disciples couldn't cure him, and the father was greatly desirous that the boy be healed, and so he came to Jesus, and he said, if you can do anything, <laughs> have compassion on us and help us. He questioned whether God, whether Jesus had the power, if you can do anything. Perhaps you remember how Jesus responded. He said, if you can believe, <laughs> all things are possible to him who believes. So he threw it back on him. 
No, it wasn't a question of Christ's power. It was a question of the man's faith. And then you remember how he cried out from his heart, I believe, help my unbelief. In other words, help me have victory over unbelief. Help me to have faith. Very, very interesting incident. We're not to limit God. We're not to question, can God do this? It's a little too big for him. You ever have things in your life where that may seem to be the case? This is something that's too hard for God to handle. Even God can't deal with this. I think that we kind of put limits on God sometimes and we wonder, can he do it? Here I have a little book called, Can God? I first heard the author speak of this book when I was in seminary. They had him there for a day or two for chapel time. His name is J. Edwin Orr. He was an Irishman. And he tells how he picked up as a young man and went out to preach to people about revival, about the Lord. He didn't have any organization backing him. He didn't really have anything except God. And he went out and he was invited to speak at places and he talked about the Lord. And he talked about all the wonderful things, how we need to be revived and follow the Lord. Anyway, I finally got a copy of his book and read it to great profit, how God had provided for him in an amazing, amazing way. He eventually became a, a PhD, got his doctorate, and he went many places in the world preaching about revival, and he became an author. This is not the only book he read. In fact, I have three others at home that he wrote, but he concentrated on revivals, like the Great Awakening in the 1900s in Wales and one revival you may not have even known about, about 1857 in New York. They began prayer meetings, and this thing caught on like wildfire, and he claimed that something like two million people eventually were converted to the Lord. In churches I pastored, we would usually have a crusade once a year. And I got him to come and speak for us. In fact, he lived in our home for a week as he conducted all these revival services. Interestingly enough, he would talk for something like an hour and 15 minutes, and yet you didn't go to sleep. He held your attention. He was a revivalist with a very good gift. When we went to Placerville, Got him a second time. He lived in our house again. <laughs> Remembered I walked with him one day to, to Bedford Park and back to our house again. Very interesting man. At one point, he was finishing up one of his books at our home. And he got it finished and needed to mail it at the post office. And I volunteered to do it. He kind of hesitated at that, and I don't blame him. <laughs> Who would he dare entrust all this work to be mailed? 
by somebody else, but he did, he trusted me. And so I mailed it for him. Never heard anything wrong about it, so evidently it went and got published and everything was fine. He was an interesting person. When in his talk at seminary, he mentioned about being in an elevator with a janitor and how something I guess he'd been thinking about, the janitor had words of wisdom and solved that particular issue, gave an answer to it. So what he was really telling us is we can find God speaking through all kinds of sources, all kinds of places, all kinds of people. And we need to be ready to, to listen. I remember one of the illustrations he used where it says in the Bible for husbands not to be bitter against their wives. I remember him using this illustration in Susanville. And there was a missionary where he was with that missionary. And he basically spoke to the missionary about not being bitter. And uh, the Bible says, don't be bitter against your wives. <laughs> and the missionary thought, you know, I guess he was in good shape with God, but he pointed out if you're bitter against your wife, you've got a problem. <laughs> Again, he was a revivalist. He pointed out things like that, help people get their lives straightened out. Anyway, can God, you see where he got that thought, I believe, back in Psalm 78. Maybe you know the song, <clears throat> Cleanse Me, O God. Have any of you heard that song? Cleanse me, O God, and know my heart today. And it goes on. It's a Maori tune, indigenous people of New Zealand. But he wrote the beautiful words, and they fit in with his revivalist calling. So God is the God of everything, all things. He's eternal. He's all-powerful. Any situation, any event, any odds, any everything. <laughs> when Sarah, Abraham's wife, heard that she was going to have a baby, she laughed. You see, she was old. She was well past the time of having babies. But then God talked with Abraham and he said, is anything too hard for the Lord? Genesis 18, verse 14. Of course, the answer is no. He can handle anything. One verse that goes along this line that helped me at one point, I remember, was Jeremiah 33, verse 3. Call unto me, and I will answer you and show you great and mighty things which you know not. Whatever the particular problem was, that was helpful to know that God is powerful like that. He can do strong and mighty things. Help me trust in him for whatever the situation was at that point. God is not only the God of the hills and the valleys, he's God of all creation of anything and everything. He's not provincial. He's universal. It's not just culture. 
it's not just intellectual, it's not racial. It's everywhere and everyone. Well, John 3.16 says as much, doesn't it? God so loved the world. He gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. He's universal. He's for everybody, every race, all people, educated, uneducated, rich and poor, any situation, any anything. <laughs> That's God for everyone. Christianity is not one religion among many. It's not the kind of thing that you can go and pick and choose. Well, I like this part, but I don't believe that part. No, it's Jesus himself, really. He made an amazing statement at the Last Supper. Billy Graham used to highlight this at Crusades. Jesus told the disciples and us, I am the way, the road. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. Now that's for the world, but we must come through Christ. We can't pick and choose. Well, I'll take a little bit of this religion, a little bit of that religion, and some of this, but I won't accept certain parts. They don't seem to be right to me. No, he's the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father, Father God, except through him. Now, why would that be the case? Well, remember they offered spotless lambs in the Old Testament, lambs without blemish? That pictured a sacrifice that was without sin. Who else was sinless and could offer such a sacrifice. The Bible tells us in more places than one that Jesus had no sin. Of course, he was virgin born. I believe that played a part in that. Adam and Eve had been sinless, but they chose to sin. We all receive a fallen nature through them. We become sinners too in not only our hearts, but in practice as well. But Jesus never sinned. He's the only one who could give the atoning sacrifice for our sins, for the sins of the world. But not everybody accepts him. But some do. We thank God for those who are the elect according to the foreknowledge of God. 1 Peter 1, 2. No man can come to me except the Father who has sent me draw him. If I be lifted up on the cross, I'll draw all people to myself. So everyone is responsible for his or her decision to accept Jesus, the only Savior, to accept Jesus, who is God with us, to trust in him who gave the only acceptable sacrifice. Not to do that means to miss out for there is no other way. Many people don't like that aspect of Christianity, so they rule it out. But it's logical and it's reasonable. Nobody else could give that kind of sacrifice that was required.
neither is there salvation in any other. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Part of Peter's message, Acts 4, verse 12. It's for everyone, it's for all people. My pastor's favorite verse is Romans 10, 13. For whosoever will call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. That's a great verse. And it's, as I said, a universal thing. It's for everyone. How did Jesus tell his disciples to act, how to do in their lives, what to perform? The last three verses in Matthew tells us, beginning in verse 18 of the last chapter, Jesus came and he spoke to them saying, all power or all authority is given to me in heaven and in earth. Therefore you go and teach or disciple all nations. See, there's the universality for everybody. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. There we find God revealed as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Believers are to be baptized. God's people are to baptize them. Teaching them to observe all things, everything, whatever I have commanded you. We're not to pick and choose. We're to accept what he said. And look, I am with you always, even to the end of the world or the age. Amen. So he says, I'm going to be with you. I'm going to help you accomplish this great commission. These parting, lasting orders. Still in effect today, we're to take this good news throughout the world, to all peoples, everywhere. God is God of all, creator and sustainer of all things. Some of you perhaps have read letters to the young churches by a man named J.B. Phillips. When I was younger, this became a very readable, very usable paraphrase or translation of New Testament letters. J.B. Phillips, the author, he made a statement, your God is too small. <laughs> That's something we're thinking about. Is our God too small? Have we limited him to the hills or to the valleys or to certain aspects of our life? instead of realizing he is God of all things, everywhere. Everything we do, whether it is business, finances, social life, vacation, schooling, dating, <laughs> everything we do God wants us to bring it to him and trust him for it. At one point, June and I were, were selling a house, the one we had in Susanville, and buying a house in Placerville. This was 50 years ago. And we still live in that house. But we had to sell the one up there that we had to follow through and have the money to buy this one in Placerville. 
I was talking to one of the area ministers, and I mentioned about praying about this matter. I think it was in process at that point. I think we hadn't actually sold the house yet in Susanville, but we'd already bought the house here in Placerville. So we needed to sell that one to buy this one. So I mentioned to him about, you know, we're praying. And he made a very interesting statement amounted to this. Uh, God's in real estate? What's a good answer to that? Yes, he's in everything. <laughs> he tells us to pray about everything, doesn't he? Philippians chapter 4, verse 6. Pray about everything. Don't worry about anything. Our God is not to be limited. He can, he will, as we trust in him. If you can do anything. No, if you will believe. <laughs> That's the God we have. That's the God that helps us day by day. That's the God whose love is to flow through us, accomplishing the Great Commission, accomplishing being living lights as he is the light of the world, to let his light shine through us, to have his love, to know that he is 100% good and all-powerful, loving, has provided for us in all ways, in salvation, in business, in finances, in health, in all things. Isn't it wonderful to know that God is the true God. Eternal, self-existent, all-powerful, everywhere, all-knowledgeable, and one could go on and on, extolling the virtues of God Almighty. God is love. God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God is Jehovah God of the Old Testament and Elohim, the Creator. He's alive. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Thank God for his wonderful word and his Holy Spirit. Shall we pray? Thank you, Lord. May these things help us have a view of how great and big you are, how language fails to describe who you really are, and as how we can't fully understand creation with all its galaxies, its immense huge distances, and we don't even see all of it, we can only see so far, how much is there, both in the big sense and in the small subatomic sense. Thank you, Lord, that you are God of gods, that you are Lord of creation, that you are Lord of love, King of kings. We trust you, Lord. Help us to trust you in all things, not to limit you, not to say, can God do this or that, but no, we are called to trust him and put into his hands all things, to worry about nothing, but to pray about every single thing. Thank you. Help us 
praise you. In Jesus' wonderful name we pray. Amen.